News from the left and the right. From the guy a bit off center and slightly out of his mind. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show on the Pacifica Radio Network. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show all the way from the beautiful Aloha state of Hawaii on the Isle of Maui in a little town called Pukalani. Aloha and welcome. Hey, we've got a lot of stuff to cover today, including some of the most violent days in America and what it means for our country as a whole. Uh, Before we get to all of that, some brief introductions are in line. Hi, if you've never heard of the show before, I'm the host, and who the show is named after, ironically, a critical thinker, problem solver, guy just left of normal and sane, but always centered in common sense. Uh, My name is Shaggy Jenkins. You can find me on my website, shaggyjenkins.com, or wherever fine social media is deeply researched for those government secrets. Uh, no, 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 wrong government. Um, <laughs> you can find me at Shaggy Live. And of course, if you uh, missed any part of these shows, just go to the website or subscribe to us on Spotify. Uh, we're also on Stitcher, and you can find us on uh, Patreon if you'd like to toss a little bit of pittance our way. Hey, we'd appreciate it. Uh, before I talk about some of the most violent days in America history, I would briefly like to announce that the 2018 elections are very, very shortly coming up for us. And if you've been following any kind of stories about, okay, honestly, if you've been living under a rock, you've probably missed all of the talk about computer infiltration and hacking and everything else that happens around elections and electronic elections. Um, Let's talk about stories of human error and Hacking, though, because here's the thing. When it comes to these election machines that we're all about to cast our ballots to, um, they're actually very, very dumb machines. Now, I know what you're thinking. Uh, Okay, what's he about to tell us? The computers are stupid? No, computers are very, very stupid machines in principle alone. I, I mean, think about it. Computers are the world's most perfect idiots executing a command to its absolute conclusion, despite that command actually having a conclusion, an end. Uh, They're called boot loops and all kinds of... Look, there's technical terms for it, but in in just a little little tidbit, here's an interesting story. Out of Texas, if you've been following any of the uh, problems, and I throw the air quotes up there, around the 2018 elections, at least the electronics, uh, you know that... Some Democrats that are, you know, reportedly voting straight Democratic tickets are finding their votes for Beto O'Rourke changed to Ted Cruz. And, of course, uh, some Republicans uh, voting a straight Republican ticket are finding their vote for Ted Cruz switched over to Beto O'Rourke. And, of course, when asked about this, Texas came forward out of the state and said, hey, this is a case of human error. And... It could actually be. See, when you're setting up codes and stuff, it's kind of easy to miss checkboxes or put people in the wrong party by just switching a column in your code. So, yeah, if you're voting a straight ticket, it might have Ted Cruz in that ticket because somebody accidentally selected Ted Cruz versus Beto O'Rourke and vice versa. Yeah, that's human error. But with the overtaxed and, let's just face it, kind of loose way that electronic voting is set up in the United States, it is susceptible to a lot of outside human interference. And that is where we get to the story of hacking. Or I would like to get to that story, but here's the problem. 
we should be talking so much about the electronic sides of voting, especially in the context that the United States is actually behind some of the other industrialized countries of the world when it comes to not only, you know, <clears throat> privacy rights online, but also using your online ID to complete such governmental functions as filing your taxes, um, voting. Yeah, other countries have figured out online voting already, and it's actually helped kind of sway the government more towards the people way. Now, the thing about that, though, is the United States is run by a kind of overworked, uh, over-demanded, and underfunded loose network of private companies that kind of manage and maintain all of this stuff. So, yeah, human error is going to happen in it, but also it's going to leave it susceptible to all kind of security flaws. But instead of talking about that, a lot of people are concentrating on other stories, and that's exactly where I'm going to leave this one, because, look, as much as we would love to sit here and delve into all week, and I mean it with all the correspondence, a whole week on the electronic ways that the, the whole election process in the United States is messed up, including how if you don't show up on a register ever so often, a computer just automatically deregisters you to vote. We would love to spend a whole week about how even these practices set up by supposed computers that are non-biased are set up by biased humans and therefore execute things along racial and socioeconomic lines. But we can't. Because instead, we have to talk about some of the weird stuff happening in America right now. And I want to begin with media. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh, no, no, Shaggy, you should really be talking about all of the violence we, we went through recently, Donald Trump's reaction to it, Mike Pence covering up for Donald Trump's reaction, and also saying that Donald Trump doesn't inflame violence. I, yeah, okay, I'll get to that in just a second. However, first, I want to talk a little bit about something happening in United States media that was actually foretold by somebody that was a disgusting human being, and I mean that because he was accused from multiple women of being a serial sexual assaulter, sexual harasser. Now, back in July of 2016, where our story begins, you probably know that more than a dozen women came forward and alleged sexual harassment, discrimination, and all kinds of terrible things against then-leader of the Fox News network empire, Roger Ailes. Now, what you probably don't know, until the story came out about it this weekend, was that leading up to that, that firing for all of those horrible things that he was, con, you know, alleged to have done, well, <clears throat> Roger Ailes kind of warned the owner, then-owner, I should say, Rupert Murdoch, that there was a real, very scary possibility that left unchecked the president, Donald Trump, would take over the entire programming edict of Fox News. This was in, well, right before July 2016. Now, it's, it should be noted that, of course, Roger Ailes does cozy up to the conservative side of the media. However, Ailes 
always tried to kind of maintain some distance, shall we say, some breathing room between him and just outright saying, don't you just love these guys? They're the greatest. He, he actually did because he wanted the, the, the fair and balanced moniker to at least in semblance appear kind of like something they were trying. But this is the thing. Donald Trump, because of the way that he did, and let's just be honest, earn billions of dollars of free advertising for his campaign by manipulating media coverage of himself, when Donald Trump was ascending to the White House, Roger Ailes was basically sounding the alarm bells saying, um, look, if we're not careful, Trump will take over or trump this entire network. Now, of course, a lot of changes have happened since that time. One of those changes is of the aforementioned firing of Roger Ailes over the multiple sexual uh, assault allegations. Second thing that happened is that, well, it's the Mickey Mouse Club all over again with the Fox News Network, and I mean that because Disney started to acquire in this huge, like, almost $71 billion deal between Rupert Murdoch, uh, started to acquire large chunks of the Fox Entertainment empire. Now, spinning this off into a new company, Rupert Murdoch stepped aside and appointed his kind of James Dean rebellion-esque son, Lachlan, okay? Now, you'll know that he fa fell out with the company a while back and kind of just went into the outback in their native Australian for a while, but recently has kind of shown back up in the role that Rupert has been holding for the longest time. Now, post-firing of Roger Ailes, Murdoch did try to maintain the distance between the Fox News Network and the presidency, but then when he stepped aside, his son seems very willing to just let, I guess, chaos rule? Because before, under the kind of, uh, shall I say, programming-based uh, mindset that Ailes had, Fox News did at least try to maintain a decorum of separation. But that's all gone now. And according to inside sources, it's kind of every person for themselves. And that means that they kind of know who their audience is because he calls that's right. The president of the United States will call up Fox News and tell people, I like that segment, or the best compliment they can get from the president, I really learned something, which usually means that he's going to take some sort of crazy BS rhetoric from Fox News and turn it into public policy, much like the caravan, the border wall, and okay, you get the hint, right? But the relationship between Trump, the person, Trump White House and Fox News has grown into a symbiotic relationship because of these phone calls. It seems that all people that are in the, you know, <clears throat> anarchist ran Fox News, or should I say New Fox, which uh, very soon is going to be, I mean, oddly married to the White House. And I mean, literally, if that Kim Guilford and Donald Trump Jr. get married, but the, the whole marriage between the Fox News Network and Trump the person is so intense right now that much like Roger Ailes predicted, Donald Trump is 
basically the programming chief of the Fox News Network. Think about that for a second. The president, through a series of tweets, phone calls, and quote-unquote access to the White House and exclusivity, has basically started to program his entire news coverage from a network that knows that they are basically broadcasting to an audience of one. And the relationships between the network and the White House are intrinsic. I've told you in the past, Sean Hannity makes all kinds of calls to the White House. So does uh, Judge Pirro and, 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 and many more of the Fox News people. I mean, they almost consider the Fox News anchors as Trump's shadow cabinet. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how you birth state media. Now, I encourage you to do as much digging into whatever stories you hear, not only on this show, but whatever show you consume news from, because the only way to maintain some sort of semblance of intelligence in this country is to fact check. And not just wait on people like me to get on shows and fact check, but fact checked a lot. Because the thing is, with Trump knowing that you have a kind of captive audience of people that feel Fox News mirrors the thoughts of conservatives, and he is now exclusively controlling the content going into those homes, not only is that state media, that starts to become political indoctrination. Y you want an example of it? Okay. How about this? <clears throat> because this is kind of crazy. But if you've ever noticed that when it comes to what some commentator comes out and says, like, oh my God, there's a migrant train moving through South America towards the United States and it could possibly have Muslim terrorists, that thought didn't come from the president first. It came from Fox News first and then was echoed by the president later. You remember the movie Wag the Dog? Nah, I hate to tell you, but... That stuff's real, at least in this case. Now, when it comes to Hope Hicks getting her appointment at the new Fox, the company that's founded under Lachlan versus Rupert, she was actually highly recommended from Donald Trump and Jared Kushner for the position. And let's just be honest, it wasn't a hiring that they, they made because of a long relationship. Her and the younger Murdoch had only met couple of times, not even in the double digits. And, and then came the recommendation from Trump and, well, Lachlan kind of felt like, eh, I'll cut the guy a favor. So now we have a White House administration that is starting to be staffed more and more because there are so many ruminations of, you know, not just the shadow cabinet of Fox News to the presidency, but actually taking some of their commentators and putting them in actual cabinet positions. Yes, the media of Fox News and the White House, you could say, are married in bed with each other. I, I, I can't use the in bed with each other because two of them are literally in bed with each other. But you get the picture. And the, the, the crazy thing about this story is the more that Trump tries to wag the tail of Fox News, the more that the subsidiary media around that empire that kind of feeds off of that same audience that would like shows and content presented on the Fox News network, 
the more they start to become an echo chamber for the president as well, including blogs, podcasts, print. You get the picture, right? You kind of go where the big ships are going, or otherwise you just get ran over in the water and sunk. And that seems to be what's happening with the right side of the media. Now, that doesn't mean that the left is being that responsible either. And that's why I always encourage you, even with shows like this, where, like I said, I try to be centered in common sense, and that a lot of times leaves me uh, on different sides of the political aisle, but even when I say this show is centered in common sense, you yourself have to have some sort of common sense when it comes to media coverage. Because if it was true of the Fox News audience, of the being skeptical of stories, they would probably realize that the last bastion of actual journalism is Shep Stewart. You know him. He's the guy that's uh, kind of called the president out on his wild conspiracy theories, actually went against other commentators like Sean Hannity and said, man, you made that stuff up on his show, his afternoon show, and and... From Fox News insiders, they think that he wants to steer the whole network left, but he's actually just trying to maintain what I'm trying to maintain. A realistic outlook that, hey, look, news happens, somebody got to talk about it. Might as well be me. In that department, though, when we talk about news, Donald Trump seems to be dictating what they call news at Fox News more and more often. And that, ladies and gentlemen could be a problem for us well into the future. Now, before we talk about some of the biggest, biggest things that are happening in the news, including the rise of domestic terrorism with last week's mailing of pipe bombs, I also kind of want to talk about Cable News Network's coverage of domestic terrorism. They're not really saying a whole lot about it. Okay, Fun fact for you, if somebody of uh, color commits a crime in the United States, well, you know, it was an act of violence, it was an act of terror. If a white person does it, it's an act of radicalism. It's a lone gunman. But when it comes to the media's coverage of some of these domestic terrorist stories, and I'm talking everything from white people shooting up churches synagogues, we'll talk more about that in just a sec, the tragic events in Pittsburgh, could be taking over a federal compound at a national park. When it comes to talking about those people that are of <clears throat> pale variety of skin, when it comes to talking about them and the acts they create, why is it that it it pains cable news networks to actually call it out by name. Now, they'll, they'll, they'll go around it. They'll try to placate certain members of their audience, much like the Fox News network does when it comes to their far-right-leaning audience. Don't say anything that could lead to them being the bad guys, even though in a lot of cases lately, they're clearly the bad guys. This is the thing. It doesn't matter which news network it is. And it doesn't matter which kind of political bias those news networks have. By and large, when it comes to domestic terrorism, actual acts of people doing things to incite 
terror within specific communities. I mean, that's the quintessential definition of what a terrorist act is, right? I hope I'm right on that, because I kind of looked it up. But when it comes to that, that, that whole definition of it is actually a terrorist act. There's no getting away from it. There's no candy coating it. There's no calling it something else. It's a terrorist act. By and large, mainstream media doesn't seem comfortable calling it that. And look, I'm going to say this as a white person. It's not going to offend me if you call white people terrorists. Now, if you're a white person and it offends you that if somebody does a massive act of destruction, of death, of anything to incite fear within another community that they may disagree with along theological or sociological lines, um, it doesn't really matter. If a white person does it, we seem almost afraid to call them terrorists, but that is clearly, by and large, in definition, what they actually are. And the thing is, is, I mean, going back in 2009, the Department of Homeland Security, uh, through their Office of Intelligence and Analysis, you know, those are the guys that actually look at things and say, this is a threat to Homeland Security, or this is not a threat to Homeland Security. That's why we call it the department. You get the picture. Look, they, they published this report, and it was kind of meant for internal use only. Now, it argued, though, that the future of terrorism, as far as the threats against the United States, wouldn't be from an outside entity. And think about that. In 2009, Department of Homeland Security put out a report that said the next large terroristic acts that happen in the United States, the next wave of terrorism that will by and large affect homeland security will not be from an outside source. It will be from, quote, homegrown domestic terrorist groups. Now, if you look into, I don't know, maybe the last administration... Um, you would notice that white people had a huge problem with the guy in charge. I don't know why. Maybe it was something he said. But anyway, all kidding aside, the thing is is that at that time, they started to look into the actual threat assessment of homegrown, militant, white people who, along racial lines, wanted to commit acts of violence, death, mass destruction, a.k.a. terrorism. And they found that number was growing steadily. Now, in just a little bit, I've got to talk about how the president has kind of emboldened these kind of groups, but the fact of the matter is, is that even without an administration that has, by and large, embraced these kind of white supremacy-feeling guys, even without that, it has been on the rise steadily, so much so that, I mean, even people like the, what is it, Southern Poverty Law Center, the guys that actually classify hate groups, even they're starting to go, hey man, we're starting to lose count. It's a growing threat in the United States that most of our acts of terrorism, 
much like the ones that we saw last week, and we'll talk about those in the second segment, those are not going to come from outside sources. They're inside. And that includes, like, your Rust Belt states across the uh, isolated plains of the United States and buried in certain, well, country hick towns along the southeast and even in the far north. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. Oh, no, Shaggy. Yeah, uh, institutionalized racism is a southern thing, or it's a west coast thing, or it's the east coast. No, it's, it's an American thing. Please, please deal with it and call it by its name. Because as long as we refuse to face the fact that white people are terrorists, as long as we absolutely refuse to embrace the fact that somebody of the Caucasian race can actually be a radicalized terrorist that is not Islamic. Key factor there. Until we embrace that fact, we're constantly, much like the major news networks and much of the major print in the United States, we're going to be missing the point of identifying these people for what they are. They're not radicalized individuals. They're not lone kooks. Stop calling them right-wing kooks and call them for what they are, domestic terrorists. And if you feel a little weird about saying that, keep in mind that the Department of Homeland Security classified these individuals as domestic terrorists. So if a government agency can actually use that name, not only should networks like CNN and especially Fox News, MSNBC and more, not only should these networks be able and very willing to use the term domestic terrorism and domestic terrorist. Until we get to that point of comfort that all of this stuff is on the table and we can address it by its name, it will not be dealt with in the way that it absolutely needs to be addressed in. And that's fundamentally going to leave us broken when it comes to homeland security. I hate to say it, but when it comes to our security now, the homeland is threatened most by people residing within the homeland. And coming up... We'll talk about the instigator-in-chief and the three worst days in American recent history coming up. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show. Welcome to 60 Second Civics, the daily podcast of the Center for Civic Education. I'm Mark Gage. When the Mayflower sought refuge in what is now known as Provincetown Harbor in the fall of 1620, there was disagreement between the pilgrims and those the pilgrims called the strangers, who were laborers, craftsmen, and others brought aboard to help with the practical work of running a colony. The Virginia Company had granted the pilgrims the right to settle land near the Hudson River, not in Massachusetts. Now that they had anchored outside of the territory controlled by the Virginia Company, some of the strangers argued that they were no longer bound by the contract. With discord growing, the pilgrims and strangers negotiated an agreement now called the Mayflower Compact, which was signed by 41 male passengers. 
The Mayflower Compact is today seen as an example of the social contract theory, which meant that the colonists consented to be governed under mutually agreed-upon laws for the general good of the colony. Social contract theory stands in opposition to the divine right theory, which holds that God ordained a monarch to rule, and thus the will of monarchs must always be obeyed, despite any opposition from the people. The pilgrims took pains, however, to describe themselves in the compact as loyal subjects of our dread sovereign lord, King James. The Mayflower Compact remains as an important early example of self-government in the colonies, and social contract theory is essential to the American conception of popular sovereignty, or rule by the people. That's all for today's podcast, 60 Second Civics, where civic education only takes a minute. There's a lot at stake this November. 36 governorships. 35 Senate seats. And all 435 House seats are up for election. If only 50% of voters show up, it would be the highest midterm turnout in a century. Learn more and get involved at IamAVoter.com. And don't forget to vote Tuesday, November 6th. Brought to you by I Am A Voter and the Ad Council. The show that doesn't grab them by the but does occasionally kick them in the ball. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show on the Pacifica Radio Network. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show on the Pacifica Radio Network. Welcome back. If you miss any part of the first show, uh, this show I should say, go to shaggyjenkins.com and you can check that out. And you can find out a lot of stuff about us, the show, the correspondence and everything. And hey, you can find out about me, lovable, laughable short host. Uh, my name's Shaggy Jenkins. Follow me online at Shaggy Live. Okay, we've got to talk about the recent events in news and especially the kind of attitude coming out of the White House about these recent acts. All right. First off, I got to kind of outright address this lie that Donald Trump told at a rally held just just after 11 people were gunned down in a very anti-Semitic kind of oh, terroristic attack. There's that word that we're supposed to use, but we never use a domestic terroristic attack here in the United States. Um, he started this whole rally by a lie. And that lie was that, hey, you remember 9-11? Well, the day... After 9-11, Wall Street was open up again because that's that's kind of the, you know, way that we don't give these scum any power over our life. So I thought I should cancel this and that, but nah, I went ahead with my political rally. Now, of course, during that rally, he was a much more subdued Trump, but the fact is, that was a lie. If you look back, and you can actually Google this, Wall Street was closed for several days in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks. But Trump, not in his world so much. And here's the thing about statements like that. It seems that Trump's bending of truth benefits basically him and his agenda alone. And that agenda has had dire consequences for the rest of the country, including an outbreak of politically motivated and racially motivated from white people, domestic terrorists, uh, as it's 
it's escalated, okay? There's no other way to say it. It's on the rise. And this is the thing. The White House has kind of sidestepped any of this stuff. And the whole responsibility of Donald Trump in bringing all of this kind of stuff to the forefront. I mean, okay. When it comes to, over the weekend, the Washington Post, which, let's just be honest, does not have a cozy relationship with the uh, the United States president. Yeah, uh, they basically put out a story saying, hey, look, the synagogue shooting was ramped up by a whole atmosphere of political turmoil in the United States, led by the president, Donald Trump. Look, Sarah Huckabee Sanders took to Twitter and basically said, is there any tragedy the Washington Post won't attack President, real Donald Trump? The evil act of anti-Semitism in Pittsburgh, which, okay, look, Pittsburgh has an H in it, Sarah, and you kind of forgot that in your tweet. So if you're going to make an emotional plea about a city, spell the damn city's name right. But moving on, she says, was committed by a coward who hated President Trump because POTUS is such an unapologetic defender of the Jewish community and the state of Israel. I don't think that had anything to do with the attack in Pittsburgh with an H. Because when you actually look at the things that were behind that shooting, none of them had to do with hating the president being a defender of Israel. And Sarah is not the only one high-ranking within the White House defending the president's speech when it comes to what he says versus what powers are given to what people in American society vis-a-vis hate groups. See, when it comes to his whole uh, side of the story, well, Mike Pence is absolutely incensed. And, and this is his quote. He goes, quote, I just don't think you can connect it to acts of threats and violence. Now, what's he talking about is, of course, people on, his words, both sides of the aisles use this kind of harsh language to get their points across because they're just passionate. But I just don't think you can connect this to actual threats of threats or violence or actual violence? No, you you absolutely can. The president has called for uh, his political enemies for something bad to befall them all the time. Think about it. He is not running in the 2016 campaign anymore, yet at all his rallies, Hillary Clinton, his then-political opponent some two years ago, remember? That election happened and you won the presidency? Well, he mentions her by name at all of his rallies. And, of course, other people that receive these bombs, people like Robert De Niro, CNN, Barack Obama. All of these people that received bombs from one Cesar Sayek, a very staunch 56-year-old ex-stripper from Florida who... According to his family's lawyer, had found a father figure in the leadership of Donald Trump. So basically, it means somebody came forward and said, "Hey, it's okay to hate," and he's like, "Sure, let's bomb him." But Mike Pence, in his classic style, says, "You know, look, no, this doesn't happen." He says, "I don't think the American people connect it," and. 
if you look back at the history of Mike Pence's speech, Mike Pence has this whole way of whatever he says, ending it with other people would absolutely agree with him. And let's just be honest, sometimes they would absolutely not agree with him. When he was governor, he used to say, Hoosiers don't do this and Hoosiers don't do that. And a lot of people were like, stop calling us Hoosiers, Hoser. Moving on, when it came to his vice presidency, he, every time he gives a statement, he always ends it with, I don't think the American people will do this. And I don't. It's, it's like he's psychic pence and he's reading all of our minds all of the time. At least that's what he kind of comes off as. Because he always tries to end it with this, I don't think the American people would think this thing is possible either. Because I, Mike Pence, think that thing. However, it's been shown that as the president has escalated not only his kind of outright defense for white supremacy groups and, let's just face it, kind of sidestepping the whole issue of why are there white supremacy groups in the United States, um... Those groups have felt emboldened and empowered, and as such, acts like the one that happened in Pittsburgh with an H, Sarah, those acts are kind of directly the fault of the political atmosphere here in the United States. Because, look, when it came to the 46-year-old, now keep in mind, Mike Pence's comments about I don't think the American people connect the dots between what the president says and the escalation of violence in the United States, that came like hours after a 46-year-old by the name of, uh, what is it, Robert Boward, walked in to the Tree of Life synagogue and started opening fire. He killed 11 people, injured six others. This is the deadliest attack on the Jewish community in the United States. Now that's according to a statement from the ADL. That's the Anti-Defamation League. But that violence could kind of be ramped up to Donald Trump. Now, this goes without saying there was a more violence that you could kind of directly link to what's happening not only here with what the president says and the groups that he defends, but the, the atmosphere of empowerment that he gives to certain people. After failing to break into a uh, church, a church attended by mostly black members of the community, well, another gentleman found and killed two people in front of a Kroger store in Kentucky. Now, this story has an odd twist because, according to some witnesses, he basically didn't kill white people and said, whites don't kill other whites. Ouch. But also, why would somebody just go around randomly starting to kill people of color and then say, hey, it's cool, as long as I don't kill white people? What kind of thought process could go into a person like that? What kind of motivations could tell them that this behavior was... Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm making up all these questions. They're absolutely rhetorical. Time and time again, the president has went after people like George Soros. One of the people that got a mail bomb. Uh, Representative Maxine Waters. One of the people that got a mail bomb. CNN is fake news. One of the people that got a mail bomb. He's incited violence across the board. And despite what Sarah Huckabee Sanders says, 
about him being a staunch defender of Jewish people and of the state of Israel. Um, <clears throat> according to a lot of research going into how safe a country the United States is for the Jewish community, it's actually looking like that is an absolute lie. An atrocious one at that. Because remember in the first segment how I said that we, we don't really time to time have the courage to call things domestic terrorism? But according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, white supremacy groups are absolutely on the rise. Attacks like, I mean, think about it this way. We have had consecutive news cycles dominated by massive acts of domestic terrorism. Pipe bombs sent out to all the political rivals of Donald Trump. White House alleges there's absolutely no tie between what the president says and that happening. We have a man walking into a synagogue gunning down 11 people. Injuring others. That, of course, Mike Pence doesn't think that you can connect the dots between actions like that and what the president kind of empowers through his loose-lipped kind of way. Now, keep in mind that this whole what is on the right referred to as a plain speech presidency. No, I'm not making that up. They say that Donald Trump, unlike any other president before them, conservative or liberal, exercises American plain speak, shooting from the hip, from gut reflexes that no president has done before. Most presidents try to preserve some sort of decorum and act from this inner rule book that never changes. And Donald Trump being a plain spoken man is shaking up that whole dynamic and look at what it's done. North Korea, China, NAFTA. Yeah, all things that are still well, well undecided if those are good things. Keep in mind, short-term gains, just like with the whole rallying around this tax cut, have very devastating, including the deficit reaching marks we've not seen faster than we thought we were going to see them. Oh, God help us all. Uh, all of this stuff, counterintuitive to the reality of Trump, just keeps continuing to happen. And the president, in his speeches, always kind of scapegoats this to somebody on the left, to some individual. And even in his toned-down speech that was justified because he doesn't want to let the terrorist win, terrorist, by the way, that he empowered, I know that's a hard concept for some people to get, but look, as the office of the presidency goes, so goes the country. The president literally is the tastemaker for how our society behaves. In times of civil strife, when we've had kind of whoo, turmoil and social progress, a president coming out and saying, hey, look, things are rough, but we're going to deal with it in a straightforward manner, does kind of comfort you no matter what side of an argument you may be on. You feel like the adults are in charge. But that's what a lot of people on the right say is so great about Donald Trump. He's plain spoken. He is so just ignorant of political decorum that it's a good thing for the United States. But it's not. It's almost like saying, gosh, it was so killer 
that I had this cancer on my arm that gangrene came along and killed that cancer for me. It's like, no, gangrene came along and we had to amputate the arm anyway. That's not exactly a victory. You don't call a, a, an infection that kills the previous infection but is worse than the previous one. You don't call that a victory. You call that an epidemic and you should seek help. But the president, being plain spoken, doesn't really seek the counsel of others when it comes to how he talks about certain issues. And this is the thing. When it comes to Donald Trump's whole approach to diplomacy and when it comes to his whole approach to how he talks to the nation through these rallies, which, remember the aforementioned Fox News networks, they sometimes preempt shows just to cover his rallies because he's big numbers, or he used to be. It seems that the more the escalation of violence in the United States happens, the less viewership and attendance, much to the chagrin of Trump, has gone down, including at his live rallies. So, the vibe is, right now, Oh, God, there's that word. Oh, the energies, the vibe. No, look, the feeling is in the United States from all sides of the political spectrum is that there is a very highly contentious political polarization happening within the American society. That political polarization is under the mandate of a nationalistic and singular interested presidential administration. And that's just it. Remember last week when we were coming out and I said, oh my God, Donald Trump has called himself a nationalist? Yeah. There's a reason that word has bad connotations. Any, any country in the past that has embraced some sort of nationalism isn't so much a love of nation as it is a hatred of people from other nations or other places, or let's just boil it down, others. And that is the terrible power of that word. Because even though Donald Trump kind of defend it and say, no, I'm talking about being interested in our nation first, America first, uh, that slogan has roots in the Ku Klux Klan, by the way. They were the American first people. Ouch. But uh, getting back into this, the thing is, is that Donald Trump, even in his co-opted Make America Great Again, and I do mean that, and if you look back at political buttons from Ronald Reagan and his whole campaign, same slogan, different dude. Uh, but whatever Donald Trump has co-opted from other people and plain spoken out there, it's supposed to be on one side seen as a good thing, but in actuality, much like everything that he says, is not true. And trying to distance the President of the United States from acts of violence and hate in our country committed by our countrymen, native, natural-born citizens. I shouldn't say native, just natural-born citizens. Not quite indigenous. There's a whole other debate that we could get into, and one that has also been escalated by Donald Trump's rhetoric, but I don't want to. I have to stay focused on this because a lot of people aren't 
wanting us to focus on it. Those people are, of course, state media, Fox News Network, the White House itself, and all of the people within the GOP that hope that you don't realize reality exists outside of their rhetoric before the midterm elections. They're very much massively hoping that they're not going to get wiped out soon. And of course, with this escalation of violence, yeah, it could happen. It could happen very, very quickly. Because a lot of people are starting to see the connection between all of these hateful words and all of these hateful actions. And trying to distance the president from them. Trying to say that Donald J. Trump and his words and actions has no direct link to these is no longer going to be painfully hard. I think in the wake of the Pittsburgh shootings, it's going to be impossible. Because as much as Donald Trump has tried to play up his pro-Jewish kind of administrative ways, his whole reaction to carrying on with his rally of, of bringing people out to attack the press over coverage of this attack, Versus coming out in solidarity and saying, what a terrible tragedy, oh my God, we have to do something about violence in America. That would have been a much more presidential statement. It would have been even presidential coming from Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who instead said this is all about the media trying to askew things always into attack of Donald Trump, missing the point that he has led to an environment in the United States where the president says they're pro-Israel, but the actual society is very dangerous to the Jewish community. And let's just face it, if you're Palestinian and you're Muslim, yeah, the United States isn't too safe for you either. It's kind of the weirdest thing that, you know, over in Palestine and Israel and the conflicts, one side's safe and one side's constantly in danger, then they both come to the United States and they're both equally in danger. This is America, y'all. And it is directly a reflection of the attitude put forth by the president. A president who, once he said he was a nationalist, guess what happened? Pipe bombs started to be mailed out. Within days of him saying he was a nationalist, then the country went super violent. Now, I know what you're saying. Well, there's no cause and effect there, Shaggy. There's no correlation, a coalition, a correlation, whatever. There's nothing, no connection whatsoever between those two things. I give to you what is called linear time and <clears throat> a factual timeline to say, no, there has to be a direct link. When you come out and say you're a nationalist and a lot of people within the nation understand that to be you're a white supremacist or at least you're kind of okay with that kind of thought. And then all of a sudden, minority communities start experiencing attacks. Yeah, a Jewish synagogue was shot up, even though that's some of the people that Trump proclaims to love the most is the Jewish community. Oh, Jared Kushner and my, my daughter and my grand, they're Jewish. How could I not love the Jewish people? Wrong. Because once you embrace the nationalist title, 
you are basically telling people who believe that black people are evil and genetically inferior to white people as well as Asians, the lowly, manipulative Jews, and all of those terrible, hateful things that these people believe as their actual facts, okay? Outside in the world of reality, we know none of those things are true. That people are just people and it doesn't matter what their background is, is so much so as where they're brought up, how they're fed as a kid, how they're educated, and how well-traveled and socialized they are. Those things are way more factors into what type of a person will become of that child more than anything else. But people don't ever want to see that. Not in the white nationalist movement, who now that the president has come out and said that he's a nationalist, they feel that it's okay to attack the Jews because that's a group that they've hated for a very, very, very long time for some very, very, very stupid and ill reasons. God, the bad thing is, is about all of this, all of the rhetoric and stuff that the president has put out there and all of the reactions within the American society, all of this stuff could be averted if you and me and everyone that we knew actually took a time to understand the impact of words and what it means when you say, as a country, that you believe in equality and justice for all. Until you seriously think what that means and consider it, no matter what your political background is, people like Donald Trump are going to find a fertile ground of manipulation here. And so, too, or, you know, let's just be honest, all of the foreign countries right now trying to manipulate your opinion through social media right ahead of a midterm election. They're going to play on your fears. They're going to stoke kind of half-truths into full-on conspiracy theories with no empirical evidence to back themselves up. And as soon as you break apart that argument, they, specifically Donald Trump, they tell you just, eh, I said it, you... It's not my job to, to actually check if it's true. But we should all check if things are true because right now it's very true that there is no absolute way that we can remove what's happening at the White House, at these rallies, under our president. There's no way that we can disconnect that anymore from the escalation of violence against minorities, against transgenders, against gays, against women. There is no way that we can divorce Trump from that anymore. And it's painful to say that, as painful as it is to say the words in media, domestic terrorism. But we have to start being, much like the right says, Donald Trump is, plain spoken about this. It is inherently wrong, wrong, for a president to incite violence and then try to sidestep responsibility for inciting that violence. And I know Rudy Giuliani came out not too long ago and said, well, truth isn't truth. But the truth of the matter is, truth is important. You have to have some sort of connection to it. Otherwise, your civilization, much like ours is right around us right now, 
unravels at its seams and crashes and burns to the ground. There's no way you could get your country back after that. But that's where we are today, and especially after the events of violence. Will this week bring more violence? God, I hope not. But the problem is, is that we can no longer divorce ourselves from a fact. A fact that our president loves stoking controversy and through his love of stoking controversy is actually leading to an escalation of violence in the United States. Join me tomorrow, hopefully under safer skies. Until then, love you, mean it. Get in by. Thank you.